Welcome to your Midwest Garden Podcast. Today we have a special guest. He's a Minnesota author and naturalist. Will you stay tuned? Again, this is me, Michael Rourke, the garden guy, along with freshman gardener slash producer. We're being very kind. His name is Scott Sandstrom. Producer Scott, say hello. Hello, Scott. <laughs> Ronan Martin, 1968. Yeah, I got to do it. You got to do it. Okay, today we're privileged. We're honored. We are joined by the author, well, his name is Alan Brannigan. He just released his latest book a couple of weeks ago, and it's called The Midwest Native Plant Primer. Mike, Mike. Scott. Let me fill you in a little bit of Alan's background. I hate a little bit of intelligence. Now you cast in on that. Go. Hey, he's the director of operations at the Minnesota Landscape Arboretum, former director of horticulture at Powell Gardens in Kansas City's Botanical Garden. He's the author of, yes, the Native Plants of the Midwest and Gardener's Butterfly Book. He's written several articles for several publications, has a design, uh, background in garden design, management, and specializes in butterflies and birds. Don't forget botany. Botany, too. Yeah. Yeah. Everyone, Mr. Alan Brannigan, welcome, Hi. Alan. Arden, come on. Show Woo-hoo. some enthusiasm. Hey, glad to, be, glad to be on your show. Thanks for asking me. <laughs> we're, we're a pretty fun group. It's pretty loose, so feel free to laugh. Well, it's supposed to be loose. I mean, this is, I, I, <laughs> we're not going to talk 72-syllable botanical terms. I mean, you know. Densivortus media brown eye. I mean, we're not going to do that. And Arden, you're not going to either. We're already no. impressed with you being here. No, no, no. So right. now that we introduced Alan a little bit, if we can get a little short version of Arden's past so she can tell the viewers, listeners. The listeners, this is a podcast. <laughs> I should know. Where's uh, your water? Yeah. We'll find your water, Scott. So Arden give us joking. a Arden give us a little description of yourself and okay. wh- why I was so brilliant to invite you here. Hi there. My name's Arden Pontash. I'm so glad to be here. I'm the stewardship specialist and native plant grower for the Wood County Park District and vice chair for the Green Ribbon Initiative's Native Plant Working Group subcommittee. So my brilliant move in inviting Arden is in our fifth episode of our podcast, we had a native plant episode. And right now, that is the number one downloaded podcast of all, of all our young history. You know, when you said episode, it made it sound like somebody was having a temper tantrum or some type of a... <laughs> and we're not. I mean, it, it, this is working. But yeah, it is our number one. And to go into what we're, we're talking about here, we're going to talk about your native plant primer, the Midwest native plant primer. First things first, I want to know what brought it to your attention you've got three <laughs> books out there why did you decide that you needed needed i mean that that the people out there the gardeners needed needed this because this is a brand new environment for people that are doing gardening and it's more than a trend i mean more than a fad this is becoming a trend you bet um well of course the, the native plants of the midwest uh came out in 2016 at the end of 2016 and you know it's a big book that costs 40 bucks 500 plants um and it actually was a little bit intimidating for beginners and homeowners and so the whole idea of the midwest native plant primer was to 
take it down a notch and make it a, a you know less expensive book, more uh, friendly to everybody. We want to be inclusive because this is such a hot topic and. Um, especially now with the pandemic, a lot of people are spending a lot of time at home and I wanted to, uh, you know, condense this message so it's really accessible to all and, you know, not too much um, really, really technical stuff, but a really good overview to um, hook homeowners in the importance of growing native plants and creating that earth-friendly garden. So in in essence, basically, I mean, this is almost like you were, uh, like you said, this was 216. Um, This is pro-pandemic scenario here. And with everybody coming in and being secluded to their houses and being that the Midwest is basically, um, well, the zoning is going to range anywhere from what, a nine ten to a three, two, one, zero. Um, in essence, you're, you're going to, you're going to find out that when there's a sunny, warm day out there, we're going to get out there and we're going to do healthy stuff. Things that they're noticing right now. Um, well, for one thing, when I first started this, you, you brought out and you said that, uh, for instance, Queen Anne's lace, it's not native. It, nope. It's a, it's a wildflower, but it was brought here by settlers. It's actually just carrots gone wild. It's wild carrots, basically. That, you know, I, that's what I was going to ask you. I mean, is that why they brought them over with them? Uh, it's yeah, it's the original plant. I, I don't know if it actually, you know, I actually think it came in um, separately. But you know, if you plant carrots and they recede and recede and recede, they eventually were revert back to a queen yeah. ants lace as Ooh. well. And of course, pull it up and smell the root. It has the most delicious carrot aroma to it. Well, well now, and it's pretty too. I mean, it, it, it's it's pretty. I like it. Well, can it be? Well, I'm not going to promote eating <laughs> as, it. As a native plant grower, <laughs> I also, you know, think it's it's an aesthetic beauty. <laughs> All right. Now, what what inspired you to write this book? Well, uh, um, it probably goes back to my uh, younger years, and and uh, native plants just grabbed my attention more than the cultivated ones, and my mom. Um, and I'm going way back on this, but this is really the true inspiration. My mom took me on a woodland wildflower walk and I got to see Dutchman's breeches and mm. you know, what a unique little plant. So and I mean, it's like the first wildflower I remember. And then, you know, I was a budding naturalist, really interested in butterflies and birds and started to make that connection between those creatures and plants. I mean, the one everyone knows about is the monarch and the milkweed, but once you start to see how all these creatures around us, um, butterflies and birds are so linked to native plants, and I would I would see that certain trees like the Nora maple or the ginkgo were like dead to all worlds and delights. And so to communicate that better, that we really need native plants in our landscape, not only for their beauty like Dutchman's breeches, but for you know how they uh, create the web of life around them and really, again, enhance uh, the environment around us. Well, you make mention on there, and uh, this is really an involved book. I'm not, not uh, what I mean is, I didn't know half of the stuff that you're throwing out, and I found it really interesting. This is almost like a novel that you just can't put down. So, <laughs> I mean, well, when you when you were talking basically about, you even suggested certain things like, well, you make suggestions about Dr. Seuss and, you know, the fertilizing and going <laughs> without pesticides. But then also, I mean, different types of critters that, that we've never seen. Now, we're, we're going through right now something. We're getting fox. We're getting coyote. We're getting a number of different varieties of hawk. And each one, there's a cycle with something. We're getting insects mm-hmm. that we've never seen before. Um, 
And people are out there just going, what is this? Some things that we used to just kill to prevent them from coming into our manicured golf course lawns to what Mm -hmm. you, in the beginning of this book, you say we basically, I don't want to say we've destroyed it, but we've altered it so much that it's not almost to the point of not being recognizable. And I have to hand it over to Arden and to you both for, well, Arden's out there collecting seeds for these plants and revitalizing and rejuvenating them. Whereas you are reincorporating them into a landscape designing um, Mm -hmm. and you're helping people to do this. Now I was going to ask you what, how did you choose the career path? But it's basically, you basically said this from the time your mom took you on that my grandfather took me out and showed me how to kill um, tomato hornworms. They were bigger than I was. (laughs) And he didn't use pesticides. He just says, Mikey, put Mm -hmm. it in your hand. Okay. I put it in my hand and then he goes, okay, do this. And he popped it right in front of my face. And so I had, my brothers and I had the biggest kick. We're out there searching for tomato hornworms <laughs> and popping them all throughout. So in essence, I'm thinking, you know, this is how, I mean, there's got to be a reason for everything. But with your end of this, um, we're in the southern Great Lakes. We're in the wetter region. We're in clay slash sand, beach sand from the, from you make mention of it in your book about the glacial mm-hmm. movement. Um there's one extreme or the other. There's not any type of middle grounds here. How are you choosing the plants to end up into, let's say, our backyard gardens or our front yard gardens? You had three divisions, first of all. Yep. You've got you've got the the whole um, well, basically to to hold my hand and walk me through this. You 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 broke <laughs> this down into divisions, which makes things easier. Now, I mean, in the beginning, you've got it in trees. Well, I'll let you explain. Sure. Well, it, it, it actually ties back to my experience as a gardener since a long time ago. I mean, we're talking over 50 years. Um, started gardening in my hometown in Iowa. And then I, uh, after graduation, my first job was in Rockford, Illinois, so northern Illinois. And then I moved to Kansas City and then here in Minnesota. And so... The plants I picked were the ones that I thought people are really going to have success with these and these are going to be the most in, impactful and they're generally uh, more readily available. And the whole reason to break it down into those um, sections and of course the big book divides it up even more. So this was kind of, um, you know, trees are, you know, anything that grows 15 feet or taller. Um, in the bigger book, um, Native Plants of the Midwest, I have shade trees versus smaller and understory trees, by the way. Um, and then we have shrubs and then ground covers, which is becoming really important. Um, Americans love to show their mulch, and I want to do every single thing I possibly can for people to give up the mulch and, and invite plants in to, to be that living mulch. And then, of course, perennials and vines. Um, which really, you know, are seasonal color and structural plants, low structural herbaceous plants that really make a garden sing through our uh, seasons here in the Midwest. Beautiful. So was it easier cutting the larger book back for the new book than you thought it would be? (laughs) It, uh, I really, you know, I had to really think about it. And again, you know, the Midwest is fairly big. It is, you know, it does, I do include Ohio on it. And then to the Eastern, uh, fringe of the great plains and, uh, yeah, to really, um, think about how 
you know, again, you want people to be successful. Can they go to their garden center and find most of these? And some of them are, are a little bit more, um, well, there's really good mail order companies. I think you actually should have no issue getting any of these plants. Well, Arden brought it to my attention that, that uh, you in your book, you, you, you say you can go with the cheap plants, you can go with the most expensive plants, and then there's people that are taking plants from certain areas. And what was that? Uh, poaching. Poaching, yeah, <laughs> it, it basically is. And it's yep. taking a plant from its, its natural environment and not really t being considerate of both the environment as well as um, the plant itself. Well, I mean, in my opinion, there's just many different approaches to procuring and acquiring those native plants. Um, and I was kind of curious about, you know, if you could expand upon maybe the strategy for selecting those native plants, you know, in accordance to where you live. Well, yeah, the, um, I, I, the, this book does still break down the Midwest into at least three components. Um, yes. I do break it down into all the natural regions in the big book, but this one, the, you know, the eastern Midwest, you all have higher rainfall and humidity, and uh, your winter temperatures can't yeah, you get do go into quite that. as crazy as us on the other side of Lake Michigan. Right. And then, I, and then I also talk about the upper versus lower Midwest, because, you know, when you start getting in southern Ohio and southern Indiana, southern Illinois and Missouri, the summers can be beastly. Yeah. <laughs> I lived in Kansas City, <laughs> I know. And the difference between, you know, like Chicago and Rockford and Northern Illinois and St. Louis is just shocking, the difference. Um, it is amazing how many plants, you know, how many Midwestern plants are universal across all this. But um, I do really want people to think about um, at least those, whether you live in the upper Midwest, the eastern Midwest, or the lower Midwest, or the western Midwest, I guess it's actually four. So all those do play a little bit component, um, at least for beginners. And again, the big book does show all the eco-regions well, um, more I, specifically. Yeah, and I really love the way that you described, you know, the overarching Midwest spirit of place. And um, I was hoping you could provide us with a, like a brief definition of how you would sure. describe the the spirit of place because i think yeah, that the, really unites everything thank you the um what i really am talking about is the area of, of north america that is the tall grass prairie in the central hardwood forest and it's mixed like you in, in toledo with the oak openings um, have so that really really to me defines the Midwest more than any state lines and of course that's what the map shows it shows that rather than the state lines and so really yeah, the man-made definitions <laughs> the man-made definitions so um, and I I just feel it, it's got you know a universal look to it with the you know most of the native landscape is gone because a lot of it's now agriculture we have the best farmland in the world, um, and we've certainly made use of that, and I'm not gonna complain about that, but all these other you know, areas we can that are marginal, we can bring back and in our own homes. And yeah, the native grasses, the native uh, tall prairie grasses and their flowing nature, a lot of our forests, especially the more savanna edge ones, the trees are very squat with beautiful horizontal branches. I mean, we do have, you know, wonderful cathedral forests of things like tulip trees and beech and sugar maples and basswoods as well. 
Um, but it, I just, you know, to the, e to the east, the eastern forests are just a lot more dense. And to the south, you know, you have the pinelands and the southern swamps. And to the west, the high plains, you know, with their really dry summers and the short little grasses, it's just not the same. And of course, the north woods with its, you know, great pinelands and bogs and, you know, it just has a whole other feel to it. So yeah, yeah, that's that's the spirit of place I was going for. I love it. That's so awesome. And I love that you're talking about the native plants um, in, in correspondence with that spirit of place and, you know, the role that they play in that process, you know, in the, um, yep. in the spirit of place. Um, can you describe like maybe the way that they create that or is there, is it something purely intangible? Now are we talking, I want me back into this. Is this <laughs> That's yeah. a tough question. Is, yeah. is this something, <laughs> Go ahead. Are, are we talking about, and I know people a bit way back when 30, 40, 50 years ago, we've had people said, you know, if you play music to the plants, they respond much better. Or if you go, <laughs> I, is this, when you're talking spirit of place, are you talking something that's almost of a, of a Zen uh, environment or are you talking about, you know, the plants are going to basically be responding to how um, the environment that they're basically growing in. Right. It, it's, it's partly that, but also it really comes down to us as gardeners and keepers of the earth. Do we want every place to look exactly the same? And I, I, I can pick on realtors with their, um, you know, they, they have, you want to worry about the saleability of your house and what that curb appeal is. Yeah. And I'm like, eh, <laughs> let's, let's <laughs> celebrate what, what, what the Midwest looks like and start incorporating plants that give it that feel so that you know you're in Ohio or Illinois or Iowa and not in Florida or California or Massachusetts or Washington or whichever. So that's really what it is. It's, and, and of course the, the native plants are adapted to our weather and soils and the conditions we have is, but you, you know, the, the basic thing still is you've got to select plants that, I mean, if you have a wooded property with lots of shade, you know, look at the woodland, the central hardwood forest and that's, for your inspiration yeah. and don't, and don't plant, you know, you got, you got a common sense there. Things that like shade don't put in the sun and, and vice versa. And, but and, then you know, we're, we're that noticing yeah. that there isn't a whole bunch of common sense. I mean, seriously, <laughs> there isn't. I, I, right. And that's a problem. You and I and Arden and Scott, well, um, well you and I and Arden uh, basically have, have uh, the, the, the question, not necessarily is this the proper sunlight, is the soil going to be a little too heavy? Um, is it afternoon sunlight? Or, why should we go with mm -hmm. you know a, a, a bluegrass lawn, a cool weather, when we can go and put certain? But finding these plants is is exceptionally difficult. We've had an environmental, well, a professor in environmental studies. His passion is going back like you or like you, Ellen, is to, to. But he wants to revitalize the black swamp. I mean, if he had his way, we'd be under six <laughs> feet of water right now, and we'd have you know hard oak trees growing in certain areas. We'd have marsh plants. We'd have you know mosquitoes up the wazoo, which is kind of a good thing, but. What I'm, what I'm thinking here is is there isn't a whole bunch of common sense when it comes down to both the application. Somebody's going to put a dogwood tree, which I don't know. This is my question. Is that indigenous to the southeast region that we're talking about? Um, a dogwood tree in the wide open spaces is not going to survive very well, especially when it's got too much water or basically not enough. How right. does one choose the plants for the environment? 
Well, again, read the book. You know, I try to, I try to, <laughs> you know, I try to, I try to talk about that. So you, you're matching, you know, where something grows wild. You know, Cornus Florida flowering dogwood is native all across Ohio. It's not native to Minnesota at all, though. Minnesota gardeners are just drooling over growing it here, and we've Thank actually you. got some on trial that are are show some promise. But um, yeah, you know, it's it's really native in. Um, Usually upland, well-drained soils. You know, oak, oak, hickory forest. Um, canopies. It, it can, yeah, it canopied. So um, it will, it will, it it does in some regions grow in full sun, which is really weird. Um, in the Ozarks, oftentimes it's on these um, oak, but again, it's oak hickory glades and openings where it gets a lot of sun. Um, and some of it, you know, it is a little bit variable to exactly where you are. But yeah, it's not a plant. It doesn't like wet feet ever. It, uh, you know, the, it wants to be a little more sheltered site, especially in the upper Midwest, well, in Michigan, Northern Ohio, um, you know, where it is, it's still native. You don't see it out in the open, so. Hey, we'd like to thank Black Diamond Garden Centers for sponsoring your Midwest garden. We record this podcast on site at the Toledo location amidst all the smells of budding flowers, the manures, the chicken schmutz, you name it. If you're in the Toledo or Perrysburg, Ohio area, please stop by either Black Diamond location for all your gardening needs. And remember, ask someone who knows. Well, we're talking to Mr. Alan Brannigan, uh, who's got you know a number of different types of books that are out there right now. However, um, I, I just want to reiterate the fact that this gentleman is is helping to promote going back to where things were well before, let's say, mankind, not mankind, but the Europeans came on board. Can you do us a favor in your book? You do a great job at you know describing the role of what they call successional lands. Can you describe mm -hmm. that? Right. That's, um, you know, after an area, well, it, you know, in pre-settlement times, it was probably the Native Americans set a big fire or, or they had their... Um, you know, temporary encampments in an area, but there is this natural succession of plants um, to to uh, reclaim an area. And a lot of a lot of the first wave is weeds or weedier things. Um, a lot of trees like box elders and so on are one of those, which we're not. I didn't put in the book. Not something I promote. But there are other things like uh, the eastern red cedar tree, um, which actually is a, a great landscape plant, one of the best, toughest evergreens you can grow. Things like the honey locust often reclaim these areas, and actually that is also makes a great shade tree with a light sheltered or light filtered shade. And of course, is have you ever picked up a limb of a honey locust to see how heavy and strong they are? I mean, it's really a wind, good wind-resistant tree, yeah. uh, sturdy, sturdy tree. So, and of course, the wild form has giant, giant thorns those for the thorns. most part. But, yes, <laughs> but it is. There are many those. natural varieties which we've selected and propagated without thorns. And uh, I'll say, in my Missouri landscape, I actually had natural thornless varieties in my woods, which was nice. But so you've um, bred them. So I what? I'm sorry. Well, did you did you do any hybriding of them? Of of, of no 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 all the all the uh, selections that you can buy at nurseries of thornless varieties um, usually are cloned males. Really, so they're uh, uh, thornless. You and go then into that in your book on that. Yes. Yeah, and they won't produce. Most people don't want the fruits, but I think the fruits, those spiral seed pods, are those gorgeous. Especially, <laughs> yeah, yeah, but, you and know, you can grow. Yeah, they come true to type from seed. If you grow the seed off a thornless plant, it almost always produces a thornless 
new trees. So. Now, do the birds like those seeds? The, the seeds are um, really good for certain foraging plants or birds like um, and one of them is one we we tend so um, I actually for edible landscape and people going back to nature have chickens chickens love to eat them right? first deer like to eat them um, and then the flowers are just really really nectar rich you hardly even notice them up in the tree both the male seedless varieties and then the you know ones with female flowers as well um, you, they're just loaded with little bees and pollinators when they're in bloom, and you hardly notice that. And then, of course, there's a whole wealth of really cool moths that feed on no other tree. Um, one of them, the moonline moth, and one of my favorite of all moths called the orange wing, which is a cute little one that has beautiful orange hind wings, and, it, and it's really friendly. It likes to actually sip the salt. When you're sweaty in the summer, it will land on you and sip the sweat off of you. Really? And they're com completely tied to honey locusts. Those moths can their caterpillars can feed on no other plant so um, honey locust actually is a really good nature tree even though it gets a little bit of a bum rap because after dutch elm disease we planted eight billion of them um, <laughs> and uh, and luckily there has been no disease or issue with it it is it is a you know a pretty isolated genus that's um you know there's really only three species in north america so hopefully it'll it'll remain that way Okay, now pre-World War II, uh, we're not going to talk agriculture. What we're talking is, are you noticing the depletion? Oh, well, see, since you and I and Arden and Scott are not really, well, we weren't around before the war. But, I mean, before the war, there wasn't a whole bunch that was done to change, let's say, this, the landscape. Everything happened after World War II. Um, unless you drained the swamps like the Germans did when they came over and they made the black swamp into farmland. But after that, there was a revolution when it came down to better living through science. And they used certain chemicals to control certain plants, certain insects. The definition of a weed came up, but then we, we, we based it on bluegrass lawns, the dandelion, which mm -hmm. is a beneficial plant, um, purslane, plantain, things that are beneficial mm -hmm. that are wild. Um, mm -hmm. but chemicals that have been applied to the lawns and gardens. Everybody wanted that bluegrass cool weather lawn like the golf courses. Everybody wanted mm -hmm. that pristine ornamental tree that was hybrid or grafted, like you had made mention. Now they're, mm -hmm. they're questioning, you know, these things aren't good for us. Now, if we went back, right. and which we are going back to what, you, what you're promoting in your book, um, is there... Well, for instance, people like yourself, are you noticing more of a curiosity through your books and through, let's say, uh, uh, the industry that you're in where people are asking, how do you do this? Uh, very much so. And let's see, how do I best answer that question? It's almost because of, uh, well, there's health concerns with the pesticides actually on people. But I think two two gateway animals made a big impact though you got to talk about rachel carson i guess on this too yeah. she was one who really pointed that out and got ddt banned and then we started to see the recovery of things like our national symbol the bald eagle right. um, and people started to make that connection but two recent big big things were the demise of the honeybee which is not a native insect but oh, it brought and I attention that this year too yeah it brought attention to bees and now it's all about the native pollinators and the native bees and and their diversity and then also 
the crash of the monarch butterfly, which I never thought I'd ever witness. I just, you know, as a young man and child, it was just everywhere. And then to see how it completely crashed and it has recovered quite well because people got that message that, oh my gosh, we've got to start planting milkweed. And, you know, a lot of that is related to this change of, of agriculture with Roundup Ready, everything, you know, the fields of Iowa are clean as a whistle now, other than of course, Roundup is, we all knew this, that things would evolve <laughs> adaptations and things like horseweed are almost immune to Roundup anymore. And so now they have to go to something else. But, um, you know, those to me, again, going back, Honeybee, um, Monarch, those were two kind of gateways to, to people really understanding the impacts of that. Well, and, and, and the things that the home gardener was taught to do during the, you know, post-World War II um, landscape you know, doing those types of things really don't even be necessarily benefit, um, you know, native pollinators. And mm -hmm. I mean, you talk in your your new book about, you know, reducing maintenance and how that can benefit wildlife. And I was hoping maybe you could uh, expand upon that a little bit. Right. And, I, you know, it is kind of an acquired taste. And, um, you know, I really watched just how, in general, ornamental grasses, when I was a young man, no one planted ornamental grasses. Well, finally, there was a breakthrough on that. People thought they looked too rough. And now I think people get that. And now it's, well, let's, instead of miscanthus is becoming invasive, that Chinese grass, now we've got to look at our native grasses and not worry about it and, and accept the beauty of big blue stem and Indian grass and switchgrass. And you're starting to see more and more of those in landscapes and people accepting that, there is beauty in that disheveled look, and it's not really disheveled. It's just an acquired taste. It actually, you know, like we talked about earlier, it is our spirit of place. And, you know, the, what is the true cost of having everything trimmed and edged and, you know, uniform? It's like it's we've learned it is kind of a dead landscape and we need to, um, you know, invite those beneficial. There's there's all these beneficial insects we were accidentally killing and you know, let's work with Mother Nature instead of against her. Absolutely. Yeah. The native plant primer talks about, you know, reducing mulch and, you know, reducing mm -hmm. mulch is so important because the little native bees can't burrow in the ground and make their hives uh, when yep. we put mulch in the ground. So, I mean, it, can, reconsidering every single thing that we do in the modern landscape to, you know, um, start benefiting those native uh, pollinators and plants. We, we're we're uh, talking with Alan Brannigan again. Um, the, the book, it's called, what is it, Arden? The Native Plant Primer. The Native Plant Primer. And with the beneficial insects that we're talking about, about the reinsurgence, um, through these native plants that are coming back, are you noticing the sand bees? Are you noticing the cicada-killing wasps? Are you noticing things of this nature coming back in, in, in groves? Because people are coming in and they're going, oh, my God, it's, it's, it's going to carry my <laughs> chihuahua away. No, they're very docile kid. I mean, insects, and they're they're yeah. beneficial. Yep, cicada killers always scare the bejeebers out of people, and and you know the best thing, of course, the males don't sting at all, and the female sting on that is it's barely like a pinch. Well, um, we, yeah. but, and they don't even want to bother you anyway. So just let me do um, my job. You know that yeah. type of thing. And we want them to do our job because it helps our trees. They keep the cicada numbers down. Thank you. Thank you. Now, in 1968, the late, late 60s, like you said, Rachel Carlson, the book. Um, Rachel Carson. Rachel Carson. What did I say, Carlson? Carlson, yeah. I, well, see, I love being corrected. No, thank you for that. But anyways, Rachel Carson 
With the elimination of DDT that's been, usually it was sprayed via, let's say, aerial sprays. Um, yep. There was a big scare in the late 60s about the Japanese beetle coming on board. Oh, it's a foreign mm -hmm. insect that's coming in. It's going to devastate everything and anything in the world. Well, believe it or not, yep. they were spraying DDT. They were doing the aerial sprayings all throughout the cities with this. What it ended mm -hmm. up doing, it didn't do anything really for the Japanese beetle to eliminate it. It eliminated predators. It eliminated pollinators. Mm -hmm. It eliminated mm -hmm. uh, be beneficial birds, insects, you name it. Everything else other than... So for what they've done, or what we've done, um, has increased the, the validity of, uh, let's say that, well, not even validity, let's say let's, the population of insects that have overrun us. I mean, mosquitoes are immune to it. I mean, mites, spider mites are immune to it. Not, I mean, they, they just become so resistant to any pesticide, that's ridiculous. It got rid of the bird. We used to see birds that would be falling out of the skies. The next day. Now, we, um, your... The Midwest native plant primer is in there to be an easier, and it is an easy read because I was sitting there just going through this. It was almost like I said, a novel that was really interesting that I was afraid to put down. What Great. Thank with you. the with the the, the 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 landscape designing? How are you in the book? I don't want to go ahead and ruin it for everybody. This is kind of like the plot. <laughs> I, could you elaborate a little bit more on, let's say that we're in West Toledo, Ohio, and we've got ourselves bedrock clay that's two miles away or certain areas that are sand. In a bedrock clay environment, and we are east of Lake Michigan because you use Lake Michigan as like the dividing line, um, what would you recommend somebody that's got an older 80-year-old house because we are in, you know, the old industrial zone, uh, but instead of going with the lawns that we're trying to make them look pristine, a little bit of lawn here, but then a lot of what? Privacy? Do we do that or do we do it for screening or do we do it for a combination of everything and then incorporate? Do these flowers, are they designed with your design to, to bloom at certain phases throughout the growing season? I know that's a really complicated question, and I hope I, I tried to <laughs> I tried to break it down into um, you know how to get started. And I always you know you, you got to match plants to the conditions of your site. And my book, I try to talk about how you know what the ranges of tolerance of these are. But one of the you know if you want to look specifically, what is doing well in your neighborhood or the local um, natural area and, and get ideas from that. And then second is you, you, gotta, you want the plants to serve a purpose. And you know, all the Midwest, we have a very warm summer and our houses, if you don't have shade um, for your house, you're a fool. I mean, the original settlers who planted all those shade trees were smart and it really does um, reduce your um, cooling bills in the summer. So, you know, get a shade tree going and again, one that matches your site and, you know, um, Okay, you make mention the condition. Of the oh, go ahead. <laughs> yeah, uh, uh, for shading, for protection of the wind, things of this nature, but then you also acquiring the native plants. You make mention of wild hyacinth, violet, wood sorrel. Um, yep. you, you actually can't stand tulips and crocus. And you, <laughs> and you make mention of other things that are going to be coming up and popping up. Can you go and elaborate on that? 
Well, um, there are sources for some of those native bulbs now, and actually, I mean, a lot of them, the biggest reason they're not as popular as the Dutch ones is we just don't have the, the growers that are producing them in those kind of quantities for uh, that cheap a price. Unfortunately, a violet wood sorrel, well, some of the nurseries are really doing well with those, and the price is coming down for a, a little bulb that you pay $4 for and you get it in the mail and it's a quarter of an inch across. Yeah, um, and, and it dries you know, it makes, up you, It usually. makes you wonder, but it, but it is a worthwhile investment. And I know, you know, I actually know growers um, and they are starting to crack the codes on these. And some of them, they're, you know, creating these great big beds of things just like they do in Holland and you can harvest out from them and, you know, it's it it's changing these things will become more available and and especially if people request them at their nursery everyone wants you know this is america you want to make money and they're going to provide what what sells so um let's create that demand rookie gardener scott here for all of us weekend warriors i <laughs> I, I hit the part in your book with yucca plants which yep. which i do have a few in the front my wife mm -hmm. has told me for years, you'll never get rid of them. Just enjoy them and build them up as much as you can. I was, yeah. I was very interested in the part in the book where you said they're used in cemeteries or found in a lot of older cemeteries. And I'm just like, okay, why? That's kind of <laughs> weird plant, you know, because, I mean, maybe in Arizona where it looks deserty <laughs> and it matches, but, you know, what, what's the history behind that? Um, I think it has to do with that evergreen nature of their foliage and that everlasting life, I think, was the big connection. And then, of course, they're just so persistent um, and, you know, really native only into the upper Midwest or the western Midwest, but do well across the entire Midwest. And, of course, they have a moth specific. Do yours get seed pods in your yard? Has oh, the moth oh, reached yes. you? Yes. They do. Yep. So, yeah, the, the moth has spread around with the plant the yucca moth, and it actually is this little white moth that physically takes the pollen ball off the stamen and puts it in the pistil, fertilizing the plant. That's the that whole way. purpose actually, in life? Physically moving, it's kind of crazy. And if you don't have the moth, you can do it by hand <laughs> and get those beautiful pods, which to me are really beautiful in the winter landscape. So the moth is in the pod? The, the, the moth then lays its egg after right. it fertilizes the flower and the larvae develop in the pod, but they don't eat all the seeds, it still produces some of the seeds. So it's kind of this, without the, the plant, the moth would be dead, and without, you know, without the moth, the plant couldn't reproduce. So well, there's a symbiotic a, relationship then. Yeah, and, and of course, you start looking at all these plants, and they, it's amazing how many of them have, well, all of them have some certain specific um, insect, almost all of them. Isn't that amazing, nature rocks? I know. Um, and, and, um, the oak openings where we live, um, I grow a plant that's similar to a yucca. It's called rattlesnake master and yeah, it, I love it, it, and it's a cool plant. It's, it, yeah, it, it's really beautiful <laughs> and it, it resembles that's a yucca. That's name is rattlesnake. Yeah. Rattlesnake master. You got to wear tall boots, Mike. <laughs> it rattles like when the, when the pods are dry. Well, I didn't um, mean to interrupt, but go. Yeah. It's, it, it doesn't grow quite as tall as the traditional what you think of as a yucca but it it does the leaves do resemble yucca leaves and it can handle drier yep. environments really well right. so that just yep. brought that to mind <laughs>
Yeah. Did it not make the book? I'm looking and I'm like, I can't believe I didn't put it in there. Um, and of course, it's in the big book, but I can't remember if it made the cut for this one. Well, it is you know, it is a phenomenal right. plant. <laughs> it's, it's a really so, great I know. plant. <laughs> you can't get them all in there. <laughs> you can't, yeah. I had to, had to reduce it down to 225. The one, the only issue some people have with it, it does seed a lot. And I can't remember if that's the reason that it, it can self-sow a lot in a garden. And that may have been the reason why I didn't put it in this one. But, that, that could be, um, you know, a little bit weird. Um, you know, and that could be a good thing for some people. <laughs> yeah, <laughs> but it could yeah, be absolutely. a bad thing. <laughs> yep. Well, yep. The, the, no. again, the book—the name of the book is the Native Plant Primer. Um, no, it's not, Mike. It's not. This is the Midwest Native. It's plant the Midwest primer. Midwest Native Plant Primer. I didn't finish. Hence, hence the name <laughs> of the podcast. I didn't finish. Is, is it just Mike's podcast? No, it's your Midwest Garden Podcast. Oh, okay. I'm going to finish. I'm going to mute your mic. Okay, don't mute anything. <laughs> the name of the book is The Midwest Native Plant Primer. Ellen Brannigan, the author, who has more than any, well, I, I guarantee you, I could sit and talk to you for like six hours, go to bed, wake <laughs> up, and talk to you for another six hours. Your other books are Native Plants of the Midwest and The Gardener's Butterfly Book. Final yep. Final questions that I've got right now before we give you back your life. Um, <laughs> you've got uh, gardening. I mean, you, you promote gardening for birds, gardening for butterflies, um, the mm -hmm. aesthetics for of gardening, basically. The hints there are basically saying that you can do almost the same thing with plants that are not the conventional flowers that we've been used to putting into our yards. For instance, annuals. They die out. Mm -hmm. And then you got to redo it again the following season. The confidence thing, when people basically are working with most of these plants, are, well, all of them are perennial. The understanding of when they bloom, what their purpose is. Mm -hmm. Can you place emphasis on how many failures you've had before <laughs> basically <laughs> succeeding? I mean, because people have a tendency to want to just give up. And mm, with your books, right. it, you're, you're, you're telling people, don't give up, just keep going. That's right. And I think, yeah, again, these the plants I picked in the primer are the ones, you know, I can almost guarantee success. I will admit, I mean, every site is a little bit different. And there are times where I have planted something and I thought that's just the perfect site. And <clears throat> I learned otherwise. So, you know, there's always a little bit of humility in gardening. Um, and sometimes it was because I um, didn't have a local variety of that native plant. Maybe I brought it from Missouri to Minnesota, and that probably isn't the best idea for the most part. Um, but, you know, it's there's always some unforeseen thing where, you know, you're going to have, you know, a mishap here or there. But for the most part, these things are tenacious and, um, again, so well adapted to our climate and soils that you shouldn't have those types of issues. Uh, Alan, I want to thank you big time. I mean, even though he did refer to his latest book, The Midwest Native <laughs> Plant Primer, as just the primer, Scott, um, it, 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 I just want to thank you. Can we do this again? I mean, I know how this is going to work. There's going to be so many inquiries. Um, I would like to bring Arden back on board, and I want her to help close on that because I would like, if, if are you, you're busier than sin. Before you came on, this has been a, <laughs> Uh, a, a heck of a, a year for everybody with COVID, um, yep. with with everything going on and uh, on and on. I think this is a respite. If we can keep things alive, 
not necessarily keeping them alive, but make them live and then help to, you know, understand that while we're watching, and especially if there's little people that are involved, the, 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 the rebirthing afterwards, I guess, for the lack of a better word, after the winters in the Midwest, um, watching these things start to come back, the success that we're having and the spiritualness mm-hmm. that's involved in this, it's helping people out to get rid of their, their going wacky. So mm-hmm. basically, I want you to check out at your local bookstore or order the books, plural, not just the Midwest Native Plant Primer, but Native Plants of the Midwest and the Gardener's Butterfly Book by Alan Brannigan. Alan, where, where are those uh, books available? Is there a number of places? Is there? Yeah, the, the, the two Midwest plant books, the, the, the Primer and Native Plants of the Midwest, are timber press, readily available all over. The, butter, the Gardener's Butterfly book is now out of print and a little bit challenging to find. So if you can get it, you are lucky. Um, and I would almost love to republish that book, but I sold the manuscript, so oh, I can't. Oh, but, <laughs> but maybe I should write another one on that topic. Yeah, but you can anyway. do another one. <laughs> It'll be easier. Well, and um, Alan, I was hoping you could please tell our listeners um, how they can learn more about you and um, you know more about your work and uh, where you know where they can just. How they can Learn get a hold just yeah. by the book, and they're going to be able to go and you know rattle on. He doesn't want to be bothered. Yes, he does. Well, um, of course, I work at the Minnesota Landscape Arboretum, and we would love it if you're in the Twin Cities, Minneapolis, St. Paul area to come see us. And and uh, yeah, it's our website is arb at umn.edu because we are part of the University of Minnesota and that's a way to reach me. That would be wonderful. Hey, what part of Iowa are you from? I'm from Decorah, Iowa, the northeast corner of the state next to Wisconsin and Minnesota. So Sioux City. All right. Yeah, <laughs> You're from the other from... end. All right. <laughs> Wait, uh, yeah. All right. Well, Alan, yeah. thank you for taking the time to talk to us. It's been a great you topic so on the growing and the popularity of this topic is just kicking butt. I hope you don't mind if uh, Scott and I and Arden can probably get back with you and do something a little bit later on. I mean, because this is so vast, and I want to get the other two books and play with those as well. So thank you, sir. Um, you and are so welcome. We will, we will uh, let it go from there. Say goodbye, Scott. Say goodbye, Arden. Thank you, Alan. Thank you, Alan. We'll put some of that information in the show notes for all our listeners, and they can uh, or order some books up. All right. Thank you all. Take care. Thanks for listening to your Midwest Garden. If you like today's conversation, please share this podcast with friends and family. And don't forget to click on the subscribe button so you won't miss any future episodes. Plus, if you have any show topics you'd like us to discuss, head on over to our sponsor's Facebook page, which is Black Diamond Garden Center, and message them your topic idea. For all of us at your Midwest Garden Podcast, I'm Michael Rourke, the Garden Guy. Hope you enjoyed today's conversation.